3: Hi, I'm Gabby and I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art, so movies, TV shows, books, music, etc., usually focusing on the darker aspects and sometimes we'll do the opposite where we talk about times that life has imitated art. So, what are we talking about today? Today's story inspired the movie The Afflicted, released in 2011. Okay. So it was written and directed by Jason Stoddard and it's inspired by the story of Teresa Knorr and her family. Okay. Teresa was a mother from hell. Like,
4: like directly from hell
3: or? She was fucking terrible. Okay. She abused her children horribly and she ended up murdering two of them. For the most part, the movie's plot unfolds similarly to the real events in the beginning and middle of the movie, although the characters aren't supposed to be like direct representations of the family members. They have different names. It's not like a biopic, I guess, like it's a little more dramatized than that. You know, like certain details are changed to create character arcs that make sense and add some drama and to kind of move things along at a quicker pace. But, right. you know, the beginning and middle, the details remain very close to the actual crimes with sure you know, sure. some differences. Right on. The end of the movie, though, things change drastically from the actual story. I won't give away the ending, but it is very, very different from how it actually ends. Okay. Okay. So let's start with, I'll tell you about who Teresa Nora is.
4: All right. Oh, is.
3: Yeah. Teresa Nora was born on March 12th, 1946. Sorry for Our dog's barking in the background. In Sacramento, California to her mother, Swanee Gay, and her father, James, he went by Jim Cross. She was the youngest of four siblings with the two oldest being half siblings to her. Jim took the two children from Swanee's first marriage in as his own and he was known to be a pretty good father. Strangely enough for the time, both of Teresa's parents worked, which allowed them to live a very nice lifestyle. Jim was a cheesemaker and Swanee worked for a timber company. When Teresa was four years old, the couple bought a big house in Sacramento, but they would soon enough face some serious hardships. Jim was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, causing him to have to quit his job once it progressed far enough. Jim basically became housebound, which negatively affected the entire family, obviously. Um, not only was Swanee exhausted from working overtime and doing all of the housework and childcare, but Jim was becoming seriously depressed and he started forming resentments towards his family as he watched them continue to live their lives while he was unable to. I mean, he could live his life, but he wasn't able to go out and do, right, you know, right. a lot of things with them.
4: He could live his life as in he was still breathing, but he couldn't function the way he wanted to. Right,
3: right? exactly.
4: And function within it, like do the things he enjoyed, all that stuff.
3: Yeah. The majority of his anger was directed towards his children since Swanee was usually working, so they really took the brunt of it. And then one day in March 1961, Teresa was on the way to the grocery store with her mother when Swanee collapsed onto the ground and passed away What? right in front of Teresa. It was determined that Swanee had congestive heart failure, likely due to all of the stress she had been dealing with, but she had been taking care of her husband and her kids so much ...that she kind of neglected her own health. Okay. Which is very, very sad. Yeah. Teresa took her mom's death extremely hard, um, obviously. She was forced to raise herself at this ...and she very quickly spiraled into a deep depression. Very similar to her father, Teresa's depression... ...often took the form of anger directed at those around her. And when she turned 16, she began to date 21-year-old Clifford Sanders... The relationship progressed rapidly and they were married within three months. The dynamic was obviously incredibly unhealthy since, you know, she's 16, he's 21.
4: And they got married married in 90 days.
3: And Teresa became so codependent with Clifford that there was just no way that he was going to be able to live up to her standards and what she was needing from him. Teresa ended up dropping out of high school and moved into his house about six months into the relationship, and things just got worse from there.
4: Every 90 days, there's major changes.
3: Yeah. This yeah. can't be
4: good. This is going downhill quick.
3: Yeah. She was incredibly insecure and constantly accusing Clifford of cheating, and she was definitely verbally abusive towards him. I feel weird saying that because she was 16 and he was 21 when they started dating, so there were some serious you know, issues there. But when you see what happens, you'll you'll understand what I mean.
4: I mean, also to be fair, I mean at twenty one, you're I mean yes, you're legally an adult. You can legally make decisions, but you're still very young.
3: Yeah, you are
4: right. So, I mean, I can see problems on both ends here. So let's let's keep going, and see what happens.
3: Yeah, that's the other thing too. Is it is possible for two people to be wrong doing the wrong thing at the same time? Hell yeah, you know. At 18 years old, Teresa became pregnant, which helped the couple return to a relatively healthy baseline for a little bit. But things got worse than ever once Teresa had the baby, who they named Howard Clyde Sanders. She ended up reverting back to her needy and possessive ways. And then one day in June 1964, Teresa went to police claiming Clifford punched her in the face during an argument, but the charges were ultimately dropped. Things finally came to a head on July 6th, 1964, when the couple was fighting about Clifford's decision to spend his birthday out with his friends instead of spending the day at home with Teresa. Clifford told Teresa he was leaving her, which set her off. She grabbed a rifle and shot Clifford in the back as he turned to walk away. One source claimed that Teresa called police herself after the incident, claiming self-defense, but other sources are either vague or say they're unsure of how police found out. But it's hard to
4: get shot in the back when, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah exactly. If,
4: if, if, I mean, you got a reverse kick that's just deadly.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, it, the way this goes is kind of wild to me. Because it should be pretty obvious, you know.
4: Right, yeah, you think.
3: When police interviewed Teresa, she said that he was trying to kill her with the gun, so she had to wrestle it away from him causing it to go off. But that doesn't make any sense since he got shot in the back. Well, it's (laughs) curve.
4: You know, they curve.
3: Teresa's story changed as time went on and she was ultimately arrested and charged because they saw through her bullshit. Okay, good, good. But she had a very good defense attorney who claimed that Clifford came home drunk and Teresa was terrified that he would become violent because that was common for him. So in order to keep herself safe, she grabbed the gun just in case and it accidentally went off. Basically, all of the evidence contradicted her stories, though, because Clifford was shot in the back, like I said, and not the front. Furthermore, friends and family members from both Clifford's side and Teresa's side claimed that Clifford was not abusive at all. Teresa's sister even said Teresa would kill before she let another woman have him. Mm -hmm. As the trial continued, Teresa told the court that she was pregnant. She did not tell them in the beginning of the trial. She waited till closer to the end of the trial to tell them. Okay. This may or may not have swayed sympathy in her favor, but likely did. And she was found not guilty. So. Okay.
4: So this woman has killed someone and because she's pregnant, we need to let her raise the child. Yep. And the other, what, three, four kids?
3: No, at this point, she this will be her second child. Yeah, but doesn't she have... She only has one baby before this. So this is her second child that she is pregnant oh, with. Oh, right, 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 right. Sorry. She it... does give birth to more children. Soon after being released from jail, Teresa had her baby, who she named Sheila. Teresa started drinking quite a bit and spent just about every night at the bar, usually opting for the American Legion Hall. There, she met a U.S. Army veteran named Estelle Thornberry. Estelle hadn't had a girlfriend in a while because he had been in a swimming accident that left him paralyzed and he hadn't felt secure enough to put himself out there to date. Teresa really liked Estelle, but they lived quite different lifestyles. Estelle was a homebody most of the time, whereas Teresa loved to go out every night. She would often leave her children with Estelle while she went out to party, sometimes for days on end. At this point, Estelle is concerned she is having an affair while he takes care of the children. Teresa tried to lie and hide it, but it eventually came out that Estelle's suspicions were correct. To make matters worse, the man that Teresa was cheating on him with was his best friend, Robert Knorr.
4: Okay, so she she starts going out to the the American Legion Hall, meets a guy that's paralyzed, and starts dating him, but then really... It seems that she's just doing that to get someone to watch her children.
3: I mean, that's how it goes. In the beginning, it does seem like she does really like him, but she's just so selfish that she isn't really capable of really caring about another person in that way. So I don't even know if her intent was to just kind of find a free babysitter. I think, I think she did really like him at first, but... She's not the... Kind, well,
4: it... it it sounds to me like my first thought is, is that she's looking for people that she can manipulate and control. Yes, uh, of course. Like this poor, this poor guy is, you know, completely malleable, right? I mean, he's like very vulnerable. Yeah. Right. And she's, you know, showing him interest. So she's able to take advantage of him.
3: Yeah, I, I get what you're saying.
4: And, you know, the other guy that she was with, like, he might have been older, but it sounds like she was extremely abusive to that guy to the point where she killed him. Yeah. Now she's got a guy who's watching all these kids. Yeah. Anyway, go on.
3: I don't like this woman. Yeah, she's fucking awful.
4: Sounds like she's about to get worse. Go ahead.
3: Estelle left as soon as he found out and Teresa moved Robert in a few weeks later. The couple had three babies in rapid succession from 1966 to 1968. Three Let's babies go. in two—I mean, obviously over two years, but in two years.
4: Uh, that's the almost minimum amount of time.
3: Yeah, quite literally. Those yes. are, that's
4: Irish triplets. Yeah, not twins, triplets. Yeah, that's hard to do.
3: Yeah, the first two babies were boys named William and Robert, and the last baby was a girl named Terry. Robert and Teresa fought all the time. Teresa carried on drinking, cheating, and gaslighting Robert while simultaneously accusing him of cheating on her. So
4: now she's cheating on him.
3: Yeah, this is what I'm saying. Like, she just doesn't have the ability to care. It has nothing to, like, yeah, she's looking for people she can manipulate and use and, you know, take advantage of. But it's not, it wasn't just to Stout, it's to every man she meets.
4: Right, and it's also, that's a common thing too, right? Like... If you get into a relationship with someone who's in a relationship and they leave that person, but they were cheating on another person to be with you, chances are they're going to cheat on you to be with that person and leave you. Yeah. like That's going to happen.
3: Yeah. That's like they say, you um, lose them how you found them.
4: Oh, lose them how you found them. You've never heard that before? I have. It's been a long time.
3: Robert couldn't take the constant accusations and he left her in 1970. He ended up being granted a divorce in 1971 and then he tried to be present in his kids' lives despite the divorce, but Teresa kept them from him. Bitch. And I I imagine that, especially back then, trying to see his kids with Teresa being as abusive and terrible as she is, I could see it being very hard to to be able to. no matter, yeah. like Even if he tried really hard, I could see it being hard. Before the year was up, Teresa got married again, this time to a railroad worker named Ronald Pulliam. Similarly to her previous relationships, Teresa would go out at night and get drunk while Ronald was forced to stay home with the kids. He was pretty certain she was having an affair as well, so he divorced her just a year into their marriage. Teresa would get married one last time four years later in 1976. Took her time this
4: time. She really took her time.
3: Yeah. Yeah. To a man named Chester Chet Harris. Chester was a copy editor for the Sacramento Union, and he actually seemed like a really good guy. He took care of all of her children as if they were his own, but cracks in the marriage started forming due to Teresa's insecurities. This is fucking weird. She felt threatened by the father-daughter relationship between 10-year-old Susan and Chester, and she became incredibly jealous of it. She ended up cheating on Chester, and she used his relationship with Susan, again, a father-daughter relationship, as her excuse for the cheating. She said, like, well, if you spent more as much time with me as you spent with Susan, then maybe I wouldn't have had to cheat. Like, so fucked up. That's weird. Yeah.
4: That's a new one.
3: You'll see her jealousy of her daughters is crazy. Okay. Teresa ended up filing for divorce in 1976 after she found out that Chester liked to take consensual nude photos of women. Chester tried to explain it to her and he offered to stop taking pictures of other women and just to take pictures of her, but she refused. And it, it was just like, it wasn't even like porn. It was like artistic nude photos. Okay. Okay. It seems like Teresa quickly went downhill now that she was on her own. Her drinking continued to progress. She gained a lot of weight, which affected her self-esteem. And in an effort to hide herself away from the world, she cut herself and her children off completely from the outside. Her jealous tendencies towards her daughters seemed to become worse now that the two oldest were going through puberty. She developed a tremendous amount of resentment towards them because she was so insecure about herself. They were beautiful, youthful girls, and she couldn't stop comparing herself to them. Teresa had been mostly verbally abusive in the past, but she started to become physically abusive at this point. She enlisted the help of her oldest son, Howard, to help beat the other children. She would abuse all of her children, but it seems like the two oldest girls got the brunt of it because of her jealousy towards them. Mm -hmm. She would put her cigarettes out on her kids and throw things at them, including, but not limited to, knives, scissors, Things like that. She manipulated her children to try to turn them against one another so that they would help her physically abuse whichever child she felt like taking her anger and resentment out on that day. And at one point, she made all of her children hold down her youngest child, Terry, while she put a gun to her head. She told Terry she would kill her if she didn't stop misbehaving. As Teresa became more reclusive, she ended up disconnecting the home phone, making it impossible for her children to contact anybody. Howard, the oldest child, moved out of the house and began living his adult life at this point. Meanwhile, Teresa and the rest of her children had to downsize to a one-bedroom apartment. So this is a pretty big family, and they're having to live in a one-bedroom apartment. Right. The neighbors took note of the family because their apartment smelled like urine, and they noticed the kids looked anxious and afraid on the rare occasion that they got a glimpse of them, since Teresa didn't really let them go outside. At this point, Teresa began having delusions as well. She believed that Susan had been turned into a witch by Chester and he made her cast a spell to make Teresa gain weight. (laughs) I know.
4: I know. It's everybody else's fault but mine, right? Yeah. God.
3: So because the weight thing was one of her biggest insecurities and one of the things that she most hated about her younger girls that they were thin and she just was so jealous of that. She began force feeding Susan and Sheila, hoping she could make them gain weight. And the girls would usually end up throwing it up and Teresa would force them to eat the vomit. Holy. When the girls tried to resist by keeping their mouth shut, Teresa would punch them and break their teeth. And at this point, nobody knows what these kids are going through, because no one has really seen them. They'd all been forced to drop out of school. Teresa didn't take them to the doctor or the dentist, so they were never around anybody else, so there's
4: no there's no truancy officer that's coming to the door. There's no none of that at this time. nope. no. The neighbors aren't calling the police
3: no. no, no. Nothing happens. They just completely slipped through the cracks. You'll see at one point that one of the children does try to get help and...
4: Well, let's get to it then.
3: Yeah. As if things could get worse at this point, Teresa's older sister, Rosemary, was murdered. This took a huge toll on Teresa and completely sent her into a tailspin. Because of this, Susan, who is the third oldest child, second oldest daughter, and remember the two oldest daughters are getting the brunt of this abuse, Is feeling like she has to get out. Like things are getting so bad that her mom is going to kill her.
4: Okay, so she's the third child, but the second oldest daughter. So she is one of the top two daughters that are getting really the brunt of the abuse. Yes. So So Howard's gone. So you've got... There's there's only three children left in the house, correct? No, there's There's five. Five? Yes. Holy shit. I'm sorry. I lost track. So
3: that's a lot. So just to... To make everything very clear to everyone, I'm going to read to you the children who are left in the house still. We have Sheila. She's the oldest daughter and the oldest child still living in the house. Then we have Susan, second oldest child. Right. William, third oldest child. Okay. Robert, fourth oldest child. Right. Terry, fifth oldest child. Okay. And as we said earlier, Howard has moved out.
4: Right, 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 right. And so Howard knows about all this abuse.
3: He knows about what's happened before he left, but things get a lot worse after he leaves. So he doesn't know about the extent to which his siblings are being abused at this point. Okay. So Susan is terrified at this point, and she is terrified that her mom is going to kill her if she doesn't get out. So she ends up running away without any idea of where she's going to go since... The kids have had very little experience with the outside world. Police ended up picking her up when she was walking on the side of the road and taking her to a psych hospital. Susan tried to tell the employees at the hospital about the abuse her mother subjected her to, but they didn't believe her. What? They got a hold of Teresa. I'm not sure how because her phone line had been disconnected, but they did. And they had her come in and talk to them. Teresa told the doctors that Susan was mentally ill and that all of her claims were absolutely false. The hospital and police didn't even try to investigate the matter. They just released Susan to her mom, which would ultimately be a death sentence for Susan. Fuck. So obviously, as soon as they got home, Teresa physically punished Susan. Well, yeah. Teresa put on a pair of leather gloves and... Beat her until Teresa was unable to continue because she was so tired. Then she forced her other children to beat Susan. Once they were done, they handcuffed her to the kitchen table, and that is where she stayed for the next two years. What? Her siblings were forced to watch her to make sure she didn't escape. She was barely given any food or water, and she usually was not allowed to get up and go to the bathroom. Instead, she was forced to go to the bathroom under the table and just sit in it. She was occasionally allowed to get up when her pressure sores got too bad or if her mom wanted to force feed her again. But other than that, yeah, she just had to sit there. Eventually, Susan became incontinent and was forced to wear adult diapers, but nothing was done. I mean, she just forced her to stay there and subjected her to terrible abuse. At one point, she was even stabbed with a pair of scissors that Teresa threw at her. And then one day in July 1984, Susan begged her mom to let her go, saying she just could not take it anymore. The next day, for whatever reason, Teresa just kind of lost it and began beating each child one by one. She then grabbed a gun and handed it to the youngest child, Terry. And she told her to shoot her sister if she tried to escape because she was going to take the handcuffs off of Susan to bring her out from under the table so that she could beat her. As she does this, the gun does go off. It's not clear if Teresa shot her or if Terry shot her, but some sources say that it was Terry that shot her after hearing a spoon fall in the kitchen because that's where the rest of her siblings were. And it just freaked her out and she pulled the trigger on accident. But regardless of how it happened, Susan has been shot. Instead of taking her daughter to the hospital with a gunshot wound, Teresa just threw her back under the table. Teresa gave Sheila and Terry some band-aids and told them to take care of her. But she quickly decided to move Susan to the bathtub after seeing how much blood was on the carpet. That's what she was upset about. And somehow Susan survives this gunshot wound. And she survives for a pretty long time. I believe she survives for like a year after this. Jesus. Yeah.
4: This poor girl.
3: Yeah. Obviously that year was spent still under the table being yeah. abused, not allowed to do anything. And so she eventually asks her mom if she can move to Alaska and her mom says, yes, but I have one stipulation. You have to let me take the bullet out because she didn't want Susan, to be able to go to authorities with such damning evidence, like a literal bullet in her body. I don't think it would matter. I know. Like, they're going to be able to see that there's serious trauma to the area. fucking gunshot wound. Regardless if the bullet is in there or not. But this is how Teresa's mind works, apparently.
4: I mean, it would be more damning if the bullet's in there. Yeah. Right. But also, like, I'm sorry, you're not going to get the bullet out. But anyway, go ahead.
3: Yeah. Which is
4: obviously how this story ends, but go ahead.
3: Teresa made Susan get on the kitchen floor, and I think she gave her some alcohol to drink to try to anesthetize her a little bit. you
4: better pound as much of that as you can before she gets rid of it.
3: Yeah, and she used a fucking kitchen knife to try to extract it. This obviously led to infection, and Susan went downhill very fast. Yeah. As she deteriorated, Teresa came up with a plan because it was clear that There's no way that Susan's going to survive this infection without some type of medical intervention. And Mm -hmm. Teresa's not getting her any medical intervention.
4: Right.
3: At this point, Susan became septic and she was becoming really delirious and kind of in and out of it. So she was not really, you know, incredibly aware of what was going on because she was just... Dying. Yeah, dying. So Susan packed up all of her belongings, and then she tied her hands and feet up and taped over her mouth, and then she had her boys help carry Susan to the car. Teresa's plan was to drive far away to a very rural area and dump her somewhere out there, but their first attempt at doing that was a failure because their car broke down, so they had to go back home for the night, and then the next day they did the same thing over again and... Teresa drove with William, Robert, and Sheila to an isolated area about two hours from their house. She had the kids help grab all of Sheila's belongings and throw them in a pile on the ground, and then they grabbed Susan and put her on top of the pile. Susan might have been very, very sick, but she was still alive at this point. Teresa poured gasoline all over her daughter before lighting her and her belongings on fire. And then they left. The next day, a woman came across Susan's still smoldering body. She ran back to the road and flagged down a passing truck. Thankfully, the truck driver had a fire extinguisher, so the two ran back to put the fire out, and that's when they realized they were looking at the burnt remains of a human because at first they thought that it was just a forest fire starting. Mm -hmm. They called police and detectives came out to collect evidence and take pictures of the scene. They were unable to ID the body, so Susan was categorized as a Jane Doe. The autopsy revealed Susan had been physically abused for a long period of time as she had bruises in different stages of healing. They also found a large tumor on Susan's ovary, which doctors said would have been incredibly painful. So she was in all of that extra pain on top of everything else. The autopsy also revealed to detectives that Susan was set on fire while she was still alive, evidenced by the soot in her lungs. Without any leads, police asked the public for help, but they didn't get any viable tips. They ended up having to make room in the morgue, so they kept the parts of Susan's body that could help identify her in the future and had to get rid of the rest. Meanwhile, at the Noor household, Teresa shifted her anger and abuse towards Sheila. So Sheila is the oldest daughter's second oldest child. Since Teresa hadn't been working, she decided to force her daughter, Sheila, into sex work. Sheila begged to do a different kind of job, but Teresa wouldn't allow it. At first, Sheila hated it, but she began to see it as her route to freedom. Her mom let her come and go as she pleased because she always came back with money, and Sheila started stashing some of it away so that she could hopefully escape. Mm -hmm. Things were looking up until one day Teresa approaches Sheila and blames her for the STI that apparently Teresa thinks she has now. Sheila obviously denied it because that makes literally zero sense, but Teresa believed it had spread via the toilet seat. Teresa beat Sheila, hogtied her, and threw her into a small broom closet. It was two square feet, and there was obviously no ventilation. Teresa forced Sheila to live in there, with her body contorted into an extremely uncomfortable position, and she began starving her, dehydrating her, and making her go to the bathroom in there. She was not allowed to leave for any reason. Teresa told the other kids not to give her any food, but they would occasionally try to sneak some. Terry once gave her a beer and begged her to confess because she thought it might save Sheila's life. But Sheila was like, no, I'm not confessing to that. I didn't do it. Right. Unfortunately, Teresa caught the kids the majority of the time that they tried to give her food and she threatened them with the same punishment. So they stopped completely. They had to act as if she didn't exist, basically. Walking past her every day and knowing how bad their sister was suffering but unable to do anything because they would likely end up killed for it. Sheila tried to scream for help, but she got little response from her mom. Teresa would give her the tiniest scraps of food just to keep her alive a little longer and prolong her torture, but that was all. Sheila tried to tell her mom that she was pregnant, hoping that may spark some sympathy, but her mom just accused her of lying. As she grew weaker, she made less and less noise. On June 21st, 1985, there was silence. Sheila passed away from starvation and dehydration. Days passed and Teresa refused to open the cabinet until the smell became too bad. I don't even think that she cared about the smell itself or about the fact that her daughter was decomposing in a closet in her apartment. I think she was just concerned that the neighbors might smell it and call police. Yeah. She told the boys to put Sheila's body into a cardboard box and tape it up. The group then drove to an area near the mountains around the Truckee Airport. They went further this time than they did with Susan's body, probably hoping the police wouldn't connect the two in any way. They left her on the side of a hiking trail before taking off to return home. Sheila's body was found very quickly by a couple named Hazel and Elmer Barber. Unfortunately, Sheila's body would be labeled as a Jane Doe as well. Mm. As soon as the group returned home, Teresa realized the smell of decomposition was still there.
4: Yeah.
3: No shit. Go away, yeah. You know. Yeah. Fucking idiot. I, yeah. She was thinking, like, okay, I'll take my daughter's body out and the smell is going to go away. But no, dude. She let Sheila's body sit in the closet for three fucking days. It's, that's going to be absorbed into the floor. I mean, this woman is,
4: is just fucking, uh, it, never mind.
3: Yeah. So she decided they had to move again. This time, that'll solve it. Yeah, I know. They'll never figure out it was us. Just wait until her plan.
0: and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: to find out if it's right for you.
3: This time it would be Teresa, Robert, William and Terry. But before they left for good, Teresa tasked Terry with burning the apartment down hoping it would get rid of the evidence.
4: Yep, that'll do it.
3: Poor Terry goes back all alone and douses the place with gasoline before setting fire to it. But it was a relatively busy time of the day still, so people were awake. That means that they noticed the fire quickly and the fire department was able to put the fire out not too long after it started. Did they see Terry? No. No one saw Terry? No. Fortunately, the closet wasn't really damaged, but unfortunately, no official from the fire department or police department felt it necessary to investigate the fire or the apartment. So no investigation was done. No
4: investigation was done? No. The, the whole apartment is engulfed in flames because of the gasoline accelerant. Mm-hmm. They probably wouldn't have smelled the, the decomposition, though, because of all the smoke.
3: Yeah, yes, right. But you would think that the fact that this was arson would make them look a little deeper into, you know, what you happened. Think.
4: But, hey, you know, the good old 80s.
3: They didn't. And eventually another family moved in. The next few years were relatively calm. William grew up and moved out, and Terry ran away to Salt Lake City, Utah, when she was still a teenager. She used Sheila's ID in order to work and live life as an adult, because obviously at this point, Sheila's ID would say she's an adult. Yeah. Robert decides to live with Teresa in Las Vegas, Nevada, instead of moving out, and Teresa forces Robert to work enough to support the two of them because she didn't want to work. He was struggling to pay the bills on his own, so in order to get some extra cash, he came up with a plan to rob a local bar. His plan was to enter the bar with a gun and request the bartender give him all of the money. Similarly to that nail salon robbery that happened earlier this year, if any of you remember that, the bartender just responded with no when he walked in with a gun. He said, no, I'm not giving it to you. No.
4: (laughs) Uh, I didn't plan for this. (laughs) Shit.
3: Yeah, yeah. What <laughs> I do now? <laughs> One of the employees was able to call police and the bartender tried to trap him in the bar so he couldn't evade authorities. Robert made the terrible decision at this point to shoot the bartender mm. because he wasn't going to be able to get out. Yeah. And he was promptly arrested for his crimes. Did he kill the guy? The bartender did die, yes. Shit. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And prison was probably
4: better than living with mom.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Teresa didn't really give a shit that Robert was arrested, but she felt authorities might look deeper into her family because of it. So she was getting a little nervous, prompting her to leave Las Vegas. She ended up moving to Salt Lake City, Utah, which is incredibly strange because that is where Terry lived at this time. And she didn't know that. And she did not know that. And neither did Terry know that she was moving there. Despite the fact that Terry worked at a grocery store in the same neighborhood that Teresa ended up living, it seems the two thankfully never crossed paths.
4: Wow, that's crazy because that's a huge city.
3: Yeah. Teresa ended up enrolling in night school in order to become a certified nurse's aide. And after obtaining her certification, she obviously seeks employment and ends up getting a job as a caretaker for an elderly woman whose son allowed Teresa to live on the property since he owned it.
0: Mm.
3: Poor Terry struggles to cope with her trauma, but she persists, but she is Mm. having a very hard time. Sure. As Terry's exposed to normal people, she begins to realize just how fucking abusive her mother was, and she wants justice for everything her mom did to all of them. Amen. In 1990, Terry goes to police in Salt Lake City and reports her mom, but they don't believe her. They feel the story is too wild to be true and they don't investigate at all. She also seeks help from a lawyer and a therapist, neither of which believe her either.
4: Even the therapist?
3: Yeah. I feel so fucking bad for her. Yeah. Three years after she tried reporting her mother for the first time, she watches an episode of America's Most Wanted. She notes the similarities between the murder they featured and her sister's murders, so she feels like producers might actually care to listen to her story and help her. She called the show's helpline, and thankfully, they believed her. Oh,
4: yeah.
3: They wanted to help her, so they advised she call cold case detectives at Placer County Sheriff's Office in California and tell them what she knows. Thankfully, the cold case detectives in California also believe her. They send one of their detectives out to Utah to interview Terry. Investigators realize that Terry knows details about the cold case murders that they never released to the public, which gave her a ton of credibility, obviously. Uh-huh. These details include her sisters having chipped teeth from force feedings and Susan being incontinent because police had found adult diapers in that pile of her belongings that was underneath her. So they knew that she obviously had some type of incontinence. Of course. Detectives began their investigation. They got a search warrant for the old apartment in Sacramento, took DNA from Terry to match to their database, where they obviously found two matches to both of her sisters, and reached out to Robert and William. Robert was easy to find because he was still in prison, and and William was living a relatively normal life in Woodland, California. Both men denied the allegations at first, but they agreed to talk when they realized they might get some leniency since they were... Abused children acting under duress at the time. Yeah, both men's stories matched Terry's, and detectives were now on the lookout for Teresa, who at this time was using her maiden name of Cross. So, I guess like kind of helped her hide a little bit, but not for not long. a ton.
4: Yeah, and they had at that time that you know that's when they started using. They they had just started using DNA. They had just started using like. The national databases, they had just started doing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the well, the national databases were fairly ingrained, but still, you know, it was relatively new.
3: Yeah. Terry told the news station her story as police were on the hunt, which alerted Teresa to the search. But it ended up being fairly easy to find her since she put her real address on her driver's license in Utah.
4: Yeah, because she's fucking idiot
3: yeah she clearly intended on fleeing though because she had withdrawn four thousand dollars and quit her job right after the story broke Teresa's employer was there when she was arrested and he was apparently completely shocked he had only had good interactions with her over the past 15 months that she took care of his mother but they were together like 24 7 because you know she was taking care of his mama at home and she lived on that property yeah and he had no idea like he thought she was a great person
4: Which is so weird.
3: Yeah, and scary as fuck. Yeah.
4: How can she switch on and off like that?
3: Yeah. The DA decided to charge William and Robert with being an accessory to murder, but they took into account the mitigating factors that they were acting under duress. Robert took a plea deal in exchange for testimony against his mother, who initially pled not guilty to two counts of murder and- Because
4: she's fucking stupid.
3: Well, just wait.
4: Okay.
3: And loads of other charges. So, obviously, she had a bunch of other charges related to the abuse and things like that and then the two counts of murder. Once Teresa realized that the death penalty was on the table, she proposed her own plea deal. She said she would plead guilty to every charge if they would just take the death penalty off. Prosecutors agreed, and Teresa was sentenced to life in prison with the eligibility for parole in 2027 when she will be 80 years old.
4: They're not letting her out.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's no fucking way. How could... Yeah. There's no fucking way.
4: I mean, they might, if she's got cancer or something, they might let her out because they don't want to pay for it. Yeah. That'd be the only reason. Yeah, but... She'd be no harm to anybody, And they, but the only thing they would pay for it would be Medicare anyway.
3: Depends on how strong she is. I mean, if she can still hold a gun, I would say she is a threat to people. William was acquitted and only required to attend therapy sessions. And Robert was found guilty and given a relatively short sentence to run concurrently with the sentence he was already serving for the robbery.
4: Sure. Yeah. Because who cares? Yeah. At
3: that point? Yeah. And, you know, at this point, people looking into the story wanted to know why the previous reports, like when Susan ran away and tried to report her mom, why mm-hmm. those weren't taken seriously. But the child services said that they didn't have the files anymore or something because all files are burned. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like literally they said like we get rid of the files like after five years or something like that.
4: So they don't anymore. They they get rid of them, but they digitize that shit now. I think. Yeah, they don't. They should.
3: Absolutely. That those types of files should never ever be destroyed.
4: If there's a child That says, I'm being abused at home. There should never be a time where that's not investigated, period. Exactly. You know, like you should be, like people should be at the house investigating what's going on and not having a conversation with your mom driving up to the school. Right, up to the hospital. Or the hospital, or the library, or the anywhere. It should be had at the kitchen table. Yeah. Because you need to find out what's going on in that home.
3: Yeah, and you have to do an actual investigation into them go to the house multiple times don't just interview the the mom obviously this woman is incredibly manipulative it breaks my heart that they just completely were failed by everyone around them and authorities did go back to look at the death of her first husband who she shot right right and they also went back to look at the death of her sister rosemary yeah but I don't think that they ever came to any type of conclusion. Uh, Rosemary was strangled and left at the end of a dead end road in Placer um, County, California. So I'm not sure if they do think that it strangulation's was...
4: strangulation's not usually something that's committed by a woman.
3: Yeah, that's true. But um, It I can mean, happen, but... I wouldn't really put anything past past Teresa but that I mean that is very true you have to have an incredible amount of strength to strangle another person so Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not sure what they decided with that one but I did think it was interesting that they went back to look at it again
4: yeah they should
3: and then yeah I just feel so awful about how all of her kids were let down so terribly and I hope she never gets let out of prison because this woman, A, does not deserve to ever be out of prison and B, I think that she is a danger to people. I do. No matter how weak or old she is. If she can pick up a gun, I think she's a danger to people.
4: It seems like she's able to realize that other people are real, right? And that they need care and help. Like that person she went to work for, right? But her children are objects yeah very strange
3: it it reminds me honestly of the case that we talked about earlier this week obviously like we haven't seen any evidence that ruby has shot her children or right. anything like that but similar stuff what we have seen is this belief on ruby's part that her children a belong to her Right. And B, deserve nothing from her. They don't deserve right. love. They don't deserve food. They don't deserve anything. They right. live in Ruby's house. It's like she thinks that they asked to be born and to have her as their mother. And
4: she's doing them a favor.
3: Yes. And and then as soon as they turn 18, even though she profited millions off of the content that she made with them, they deserve nothing. They deserve no help Right. They have to move on, move out, and don't ever fucking ask me for a thing. Even though my entire career, all of my wealth is because of you guys. No right. one would have just watched Ruby Frank because she's no. a boring, uninteresting person. She sucks. They wanted to watch for the kids. And yeah,
4: she's an abusive piece of shit. That's all she just,
3: is. It it makes me really sad that families are still going through this. Children are still going through this. And I know we'll never live in a world where it is, you know, completely gone. But I just wish that there were, you know, resources that could be quickly and easily accessed to stop this stuff before it gets so bad. Yeah, it would be nice. So that is the case of the Nora family. And I hope that I was able to tell the story with the respect and empathy that it deserves. And that is all that I have for this episode. And we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. If you have a second and you're able to write a review or anything like that, it's very, very helpful for us. But I completely understand if not. But I do really appreciate you guys listening. And I'm just so grateful for you all. And I love you all. And I'll talk to you next week.
1: See you next time. Bye. Bye.